welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Hopefully you guys have been digging on all the stuff that we've been putting out. We have a really cool guest. Like, did I say really cool? You said really cool. I'm going to say it again. A really cool guest on our phone today. You know what's interesting about that? Actually, I was reading about him online uh, recently and your friends and colleagues describe you as rather nerdy, which is my favorite because I, I love nerds. I'm a big nerd. Hey, everyone, it's Amanda. And we have Whitney Lowe on the phone. And yes, for those of you who know who Whitney Lowe is, it is the Whitney Lowe massage therapist. <laughs> Over 30 years of clinical work. He's uh, written textbooks. He's done, I guess, contrib- um, contributed on other people's textbooks. He's published articles. He teaches continuing education. And as of December 18th, he's going to be uh appearing on his own podcast. So thanks for talking to us today, Whitney. Great. Thank you very much for inviting me. Great to talk to you both. All right. So why don't we just start at the beginning for anybody who doesn't know who you are? As I told you off mic, I'm I'm a little bit starstruck right now. And I know some people know exactly who you are. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. He sent us a really nice message on Facebook. You did. You did. That was really nice. Yes. About the podcast. And so I sent a message back saying, hey, do you mind if I if I post these comments? And, you know, he responded, I can, I can, I can write you something formal if you like. I'm like, no, 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 no. Canada is great. And then I posted it. I wasn't, I I mean, I'm from Canada, right? We're sort of new to the continued education game. Yeah. And, you know, I'm relatively new in online space. So, I mean, a lot of times you don't know about what's going on unless you're in these territories. And then I posted it on our Facebook page. And then someone's comment was, is this the Whitney Lowe? Yeah. And I'm like, the Whitney Lowe? Let me go Google <laughs> what's going on here. Yeah. And then we became... Yeah, utterly starstruck by the fact that you were listening to us because, as I said to you off mic, you are way more famous than we are. Um, So why don't we start at the beginning? For anybody who doesn't know who you are, can you just give them a little introduction about yourself and your background and uh, all the things that you've done over the last three decades? Yeah, okay. I'll uh, cliff notes version that. So uh, I'll start off saying, welcome, welcome. My name is Whitney Lowe. (laughs) Yeah, my name is Whitney Lowe. I am a massage therapist uh, in Central Oregon in the United States and have been in practice for about 31 years now. And um, originally got into massage. I was uh, down in Atlanta, Georgia. That's where I did my original training. And I uh, was working in a number of clinical environments down there, um, private practice, working with an orthopedic clinic down there for a good number of years. Got very involved with teaching in a massage school and uh, got very, very interested in the educational side of, of our field. And uh, eventually moved out to Oregon back in the mid-90s and started my uh, education company, which was really designed to produce education materials for massage therapists, because at that time, there really were such a very, um, very little um, resources available for the schools. So I was trying to produce some educational materials for massage therapists, mainly focusing around um, assessment skills and treatment of pain and injury conditions. That was sort of my niche of interest, uh, really, in the world of orthopedics. And so um, ever since that time, that's sort of been growing. It's, you know, evolved into teaching workshops, training programs, the textbooks. And then in the late 90s, I got very into online education, mainly looking for ways to, uh, you know, you guys are continuing education instructors. You probably have experienced the same sort of thing too, which is, you know, the the whole process of trying to teach people relatively complex principles in a two-day weekend workshop can get really challenging just because your brain gets overloaded after a certain number of hours and it's really hard to continue taking stuff in. Mm -hmm. And I was really noticing that trying to teach things that were not just, you know, do this technique exactly like this, but I was really trying to teach people clinical reasoning processes and found that to be very challenging to try to, to accomplish in the two-day weekend workshops. So I started looking into a lot of online education back in the late 90s and early 2000s, and that's kind of where uh, I've been living a lot since then is in that world of trying to, to produce, you know, very high-quality uh, programs and, and options and, and possibilities for people to to learn some of the more um, complexities of, of the uh, whole rehabilitation environment. Is that the Academy of Clinical Massage? Is that your yes. company? Yeah, so that's yeah? My, okay. my business. We were um, a different company name up until 2014. We renamed our, our company to sort of re- reference that back before that time. Um, we had been the uh, Orthopedic Massage Education and Research Institute. So we sort of shifted our focus, trying to broaden people's perspective of what we were really doing and trying to address both some things at entry-level training and also in continuing education. So we've been the uh, the academy since 2014. So 
that's been kind of the, the trajectory and path. And there's been lots of offshoots all through that whole time. Very, you know, interesting things that have been happening since then, but that's kind of the, that's the cliff notes version of it anyway. I love the online stuff. And it's so true what you say about trying to cram everything in into a weekend course. And it's such a fucking hard go at the end of the weekend. You have a whole bunch of people saying this should actually be a four day course. Yeah. And then, well, if you, yeah. if you, if you put it as a four day course and price it as a four day course, no one would take it. If you that's had right. it at a four day course, no one would take it because they're not taking that time off of work. Yeah. It's, it's such a weird balancing act you got to do in this business yeah and we get such good reviews on our in-class courses and i think the only feedback we ever get is exactly what uh, you and mark are talking about is uh, people saying this is a lot to learn in two days and uh, by the end of it they're you know they're fried their brains are fried yeah absolutely and one of the other things that sort of got me going along this route was um in, in addition to being you know a serious geek on you know biomechanics and orthopedics and that whole realm i'm really into education. Um, I'm very fascinated with studying education and how people learn and how to make learning experiences better. And one of the things that started occurring to me as I was learning more about the educational process and, and, and learning theory is watching what would happen when I would give people, let's say, a certain piece of you know content information. We're talking about shoulder impingement syndrome or something like that. And I talk about, you know, here are the signs and symptoms and here's what kinds of things that you'd like to be doing and then go through this whole long thing. Anybody got any questions? Nobody's hand goes up. Okay, good. That means everybody's got it. 15 minutes later, we go to our practical applications and mm-hmm. I pose a question to them that's in a different context. Like, what would be the signs and symptoms if you saw something like this? And then all of a sudden there's this deer in the headlights look because you didn't tell us that. Right. But that's the whole point is that you've got to be able to translate that information in, into different contexts. And that's what really made me realize a lot of what happens in so much teaching is really about information dumping and assuming that that teaches people how to think. And that really doesn't happen. That really doesn't happen in a lot of instances. And that's why I really got looking into things that we could do when we can build individualized and personalized learning experiences online that would really um, push the envelope in, in getting people to think individually and think critically and have, have them have to look at things from, from multiple different perspectives. And again, that's just, that's hard to do individually in the classroom experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's another reason why we even started to offer one-on-one training with people. Yeah. And I mean, what you're saying is so true. Um, critical thinking is what our profession is about. Every person that comes in is a, you know, different body, different nervous system, different, everyone's signs and symptoms are going to present a little bit differently and being able able to take what we've learned through formal massage education and through continuing education and apply it to different scenarios is really challenging for a lot of people. So I I think what you're doing is great. It's teaching people how to think critically. And uh, that was actually one of my favorite courses in university, my critical thinking course. Hmm. I think everyone should have to take one. Yeah. Mark and I were talking about this a month or two back. We were on a call talking about some different things and talking about, for example, the way that a topic like assessment is often taught in many training programs is really kind of like a uh, do this laundry, you know, learn this laundry list of, of orthopedic tests. And mm-hmm. then, you know, when somebody comes in with they've got this problem, start running through the laundry list of tests. And it completely bypasses the whole critical thinking process of recognizing, you know, there's a whole lot more that needs to happen in a comprehensive assessment more than just running through these procedures. And yeah. that's all about the clinical reasoning and critical thinking. Absolutely. And I think that's why a lot of massage therapists are are pushing away the orthopedic tests because they don't find value in them, but there is a lot of value in them if they're used correctly with all of the other things like you're talking about to fully assess yeah. a patient. It's not just about this laundry list of orthopedic tests that we learn without even knowing all of the pathologies yet. It's, it is very bizarre the way that we're talking. You know, even, even with those tests, I find a lot of therapists don't even understand how the test works. Mm-hmm. Like why, when I do this, yeah. is it causing stress to this particular structure? How is it targeting this particular structure? They have no idea. They just know this is what I do with my hands. This is what I make the patient do. And if they say this happens, then it's a positive or it's a negative. They don't even understand the mechanics of the test. Yeah, that's problematic. Exactly. Itself. Yeah. 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 And when that's one of the things that I was acutely aware of when I was um, doing my assessment book was, you know, that 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 piece was missing from most of the assessment books on the market. And so, you know, I decided instead of putting a ton of tests in there, of many of which I think are just, you know accessory things that are not as as pertinent and necessary, but 
with those tests that I did include in there, I put a you know biomechanical explanation of what's happening. Why does this reproduce pain if a mm-hmm. particular condition is present? Because I think it's extremely important that people understand that so they can also understand, well, why might it not cause pain if it's not present? And you know what might be some other ways to look at this if those pictures and don't seem to add up to to what I think is really going on here. Mm-hmm. When yeah. uh, when was your first assessment book published? Well, I'm I'm kind of embarrassed to talk about the first version of it because <laughs> um, you know don't we all have our early stages, <laughs> but uh, the very first version of it was published in 1994. Five, yeah, 1995. There's a whole long story behind how that whole thing got started. But basically, I was writing a book at that time. Uh, could not, you know, did not necessarily have uh, any, um, you know, publishers interested in doing something like that or interested in working with massage therapists. And I had no money. Uh, and it was a real, you know, kind of skin of my teeth sort of thing that I did with the, with the very first version of that book. So it was self-published and self-designed. And this is in, you know, this is before the days of really desktop uh, publishing software coming to be, you know, really mm-hmm. robust and, and, and realistic. So it was pretty rudimentary, um, that very first version that came out in, in the mid-90s. And then after that, we, you know, kind of got, got a lot better, a lot of skills because it forced me to learn a whole lot about computer graphics, layout design, you know, concept ideas, user experience, all those kinds of things that go into to producing educational materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time I find one of those old versions, I try to pick them up and then stash them away so I can hide them. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody you know, started somewhere. People come to me like, look what I have. I have this version from like, uh, you know. And the other thing is I, I have always um, – I have always looked very young for my age. So I put my picture in that original book and I swear to God, if you look at those pictures, you see that I look like I'm 17. I mean, <laughs> I, I was in my late twenties, but I look like a little kid. And that was a, a problem for me a lot early on in my career. Cause I would go teach these courses and people would say like, who's this kid? <laughs> Where, where's your dad? After a while I grew a goatee trying to look older and then the, <laughs> you know, by the time I got in my late forties, early fifties or so, I started having gray hair and it started thinning a little bit and I got glasses and I thought, Well, okay, now I sort of look like I'm on my real age. <laughs> Most people want to look young and you're there trying to make yourself look I older. Know. Amazing. Well, I figured I had I had two big strikes going against me because one, I was young and sort of young and small looking. The other thing was I'm from the southern part of the United States, so I have a southern accent. And medical stuff spoken in a southern accent um, doesn't always work so well. So, And there's a joke here in the United States that, you know, like if you try to, and I'm just, you know, I'm not very happy about this, but if you try to sound like you're not very intelligent, people always use a southern accent. So Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm like I'm just nodding in agreement because I mean I th- I think that has just become a thing and I don't know why you know we're yeah it's just not very not a very nice stereotype <laughs> I blame King of the Hill it's a thing yeah so, <laughs> it is a thing yeah um yeah. I I want to ask you how does somebody get into writing a book how does this all come about you know I I I know you got into the continuing education you saw where the flaws were like did you just wake up one day and you're like I'm going to write a book. Did you have experience writing? How does this happen? No, I really had no experience getting started. And the way it actually happened for me was um, when I had moved out to Oregon, it it turned out that I had a whole lot of time on my hands because I couldn't practice um, when I first moved here because I had to wait for the next licensure test to come around. So I had like a six-month time period where I was not able to work. And I thought, well, I've been waiting for some time to be able to produce some educational materials for massage therapists. I think maybe this is the time. And I had a a vision of an idea of a book about treatment of orthopedic injuries for massage therapists. And I said, well, the first thing that happens when a client comes in is we go through the assessment. So I'm going to write the assessment chapter first. And it turned out that that whole thing was so comprehensive and long that it was way more than a chapter. And so that turned into a book. And so that assessment book, um, you know, it took me several years, to, you know, writing the book and then, you know, getting out and starting to promote it and teach that stuff. And it, it wasn't until, what is it, probably like 1998 that I actually went back and finished the treatment book um, after the assessment book had been about. So in terms of somebody getting started doing that, I think you have to have kind of a comprehensive picture and a vision of what you see that needs to be, you know, what what is it that's got to, something's got to come out of you. You know, you, it's it's a whole lot of work 
it is a whole lot of work to put something like that together. So you really have to be passionate and committed to wanting to get that whole big project out of there. But, you know, for people who are wanting to get started doing that kind of stuff, I always tell them, start writing articles, you know, do blog mm-hmm. posts, do uh, mm-hmm. you know, publish some articles, get some of the things out there. You start finessing and working on your writing skills, and that will really help you uh, sort of hone on on those skills and, and get more precise about your the way that you convey ideas and get get things across. That's pretty cool. I I can imagine, or I can't imagine, I should say, how much work it would be to write a book. So your assessment book is Orthopedic Assessment and Massage Therapy. And how many versions exist of that book? So that's just the first edition of that book. I actually renamed the original book oh, was okay. called Functional Assessment and Massage Therapy. And I sort of renamed it as I redid it because the whole format was so very different. I just, I wanted it to be sort of a different perspective. And Right now, I'm working on the next edition of the book, which is um, going to be out hopefully in the first half of next year. And this next edition of the book is going to be much more of a multimedia learning product because I really want to highly integrate a lot of um, interactive online education elements with the book because there's a lot of stuff about, um, you know, we have a sort of a hands-on psychomotor activity that we do a lot. And to learn some of those procedures and methods and techniques, it's really beneficial to see them performed in moving pictures as opposed to still images. So there'll yeah. be a lot of that kind of stuff. And, and also some of the interactive, um, engaging exercises, the critical thinking exercises that help a person, you know, figure something out. I want to build a lot of those as, uh, as adjunct stuff to what uh, what's in the book itself. Because like... If you take a really simple concept of assessment that, I mean, I say it's a simple concept, but it's really one of those things that you just realize once you start teaching this, people don't get things. That if you go say, what are three possible causes if a client has pain with, uh, let's say, resisted lateral rotation of their shoulder, passive medial rotation, and uh, active abduction, just those three things. What are three possible causes of that? And that, that in and of itself is a simple procedure to perform, but the analysis of interpreting what does that mean, mm-hmm. what might that right. possibly point to is pretty complex. Mm-hmm. And that's the stuff that people don't really learn that well out of there. And that's what I really want to emphasize and kind of get away from all this focus on these special tests and get people to just start thinking about fundamental reasoning because that's what really I think that's where the rubber really hits the road better. Oh for sure. For I agree sure. with you. Yeah. Are you a, are you a one man show or do you have like a team going on? I have a very small team so I work uh here I'm mostly a one man show in the business but my wife helps me out some. She does a lot of uh editing and and working with the um publication end of our business. Her background was in rhetoric and language. Uh, things. So she does a lot of the editing of uh, the writing and all the um, marketing communications that go out and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. she's really helped me become a much better writer uh, as a result of that. And um, she's ruthless. <laughs> 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 um, you know, it's it's a challenging thing when your spouse is your editor because, you know, you send things in and so it's like, this is crap. This is not going out. <laughs> you know, she has no qualms about telling me that. So it it's can a good be hard woman. sometimes, but That's she's a really good, good at it. Woman. Yeah, she's really good at it. Yeah. <laughs> I can relate to uh, working with your spouse. I mean, Mark and I, Mark and I cannot, uh, we can't tiptoe around each other's feelings. And in the beginning, yeah. I have to say, I was probably the sensitive Sally. If he would tell me something was shit or something I did, you know, didn't really, didn't really add up to what he wanted. And uh, yeah, you get a tough skin pretty quick. You have to. Yeah. Do you all find it <laughs> difficult not to take the business home or does that, um, do you set good boundaries with that? No boundaries. We are not good at that. No. It's hard. It's really hard when you work with your spouse and she's like, well, you got 10 minutes and something comes up to, you know, about something in the business It's hard not to talk about it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Amanda's much better at turning off than I am. I, I don't really have an off. She lets me know when I should be turned off. Yeah, but it usually <laughs> it usually takes like, you know, the gentle reminder followed by the, okay, we've talked about this already, followed by the put your goddamn laptop away now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, we're still yeah. we're still new in this continuing education business. You know, as Mark said, you know, we're 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 pretty green. I think we really only really dove into it full time uh, just going on four years ago. That's not a long time. And we've done a lot of things in four years. I mean, the podcast has only been going on for a year and a half. We do have to work a lot right now. And my hope is that when we get to, you know, being 30 year veterans, we don't have to work 24 hours a day. Hmm. Please tell me it gets better. Yeah. Whitney. Tell me that. <laughs> well, you know, 
not always. I think, you know, a lot of it depends on a very uncertain future because, for example, you know, the trajectory of when my book first came out and started, you know, getting into a lot of schools, which was the early 2000s, that was during the rapid acceleration rate of enrollments in schools. And I was like, yeah, this is great. This is looking, this is looking really nice. And the last 10 years, we've been riding a very, very steep downhill wave mm-hmm. of, um, you know, school enrollments dropping, uh, schools closing. I don't know if you guys in, in Canada are having the same experience, but we're having you know, a lot of school closings here, and a lot of enrollment drops here. And, you know, that's affecting the education market pretty significantly. So it's causing a lot of folks to have to you know, readjust and 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 look at things in a, in a different perspective. I don't know about um, enrollment dropping. Mark might be able to speak to that a little bit better. We have had some schools closing, but I always looked at it as a positive because I feel like there might have been too many schools and not all of the same caliber. And I think that we're possibly weeding out the ones that weren't exactly producing the highest quality education. But I don't know about enrollment dropping, Mark. Yeah, I I don't think formal education has dropped too much, to be honest with you. Um, But the continuing education, at least in Ontario, the landscape has changed dramatically in the last two years because our governing body changed around uh, the requirements for continuing education. So that's been a a little bit of a battle. Yeah. Yeah, I was listening to your your podcast discussion about those changes and it just, it does seem like it's kind of a pretty tumultuous time there. In, in Ontario for what for people are having to navigate figuring out how to how to make it all work. Yeah. So I think people are starting to figure it out now and I think it's going to get easier. There's always going to be a learning curve and there's always going to be, you know, some bit of a shitstorm before it gets better for lack of a better term. I yeah. think I think it'll be fine. Yeah. I'm I'm not too concerned about it and I think that we have uh we've built a reputation and we've built a loyal following enough that people know that we're still going to continue offering the same quality and caliber of education that we always have. Yeah. And Amanda, I think you're spot on right too in, in talking about the the school closures in terms of the number of schools that, you know, in my opinion, we were way overboard with the number of schools, at least here in the States during mm-hmm. that time period. We went up, you know, around 14 to 1500 schools wow. in the uh, you know, mid 2000s, mid to like about 2006 or seven, I think is around the time when it peaked. And uh, that's just way too many schools because there was a long-term detrimental effect. And I've been on on the soapbox about this so, so much for the last couple of decades is that when you have that many schools, you don't have enough qualified faculty to staff all of these schools. Exactly. There were lots of instances where people were getting out of school, graduating, and six months later, they were getting recruited to teach. Uh, in those schools because they just needed to fill the teacher's seat in in certain classes. Mm -hmm. And I watched, especially in the continuing education world, the quality of training and the skill set that people were coming into continuing education courses with was going downhill, even though the profession was growing and we should think that people would be getting better and getting more skilled and getting smarter, et cetera. The quality of the, the training that they were coming into these courses with, it was going down and I directly attribute that to too many schools with too many untrained faculty. Yeah, I agree. I, we've talked about that quite often. We always somehow end up on a rant about <laughs> massage therapy education because it is important yeah. to us. You know, like when we have, I think we've been very lucky in our continuing edu- education courses, at least. I think the people that come here are people that are serious and they want to learn. We, you know, we don't have a lot of people who are just taking a course to take a course probably because of the nature of our courses. It's not, you know, we don't have stuff that's just, you know, throw away, easy giveaway courses. Um, But even in our OSCE prep, we do one-on-one preparation for the licensing exams. And some of the people that have come in are completely unprepared. And I mean, they've already completed their two years or whatever it was at Massage College. And we were surprised by lack of knowledge of some of the participants that were coming to take those courses. I'm curious too. I'd like to to know in terms of your you guys experience of what your sort of the, the overall sense. I mean, I know this is a generalization, but when people come to your courses, do you sense that a fair number of them or larger number of them are coming because they really are interested in enhancing their professional development as opposed to like, oh, I just know I need to to meet some some requirements down the road. Are they are they um do you find them to be, for the most part, pretty eager to want to learn more and to 
to actually put forth some work and effort. I think we get a little bit of both where majority of the participants that come to our courses genuinely want to learn. Um, you know, as I said, for example, we have a biomechanics course. What massage therapist is going to take a biomechanics course just to fulfill requirements when they can go and take, yeah, you know, right. like a, a deep tissue massage course or, you know, something that's not so heavy and so academic. So yeah. when we have students who are coming in and taking like our exercise physiology course or biomechanics or even our advanced joint mobilizations or orthopedic assessments, these are heavy courses with a lot of material that are going to drain you by the end of the course. And so those students are usually pretty good, pretty focused, and they're in there. Now, that's not to say that we haven't had a few. I know there was one uh, weekend that we taught biomechanics, and there was a woman here who I swear just, you know, took it because it was one of the least expensive courses on our calendar and she had to take something because she was completely yeah. glazed over the entire time, not participating, pretty certain she was on Facebook the entire time. <laughs> so yeah, we get we get those obviously. Yeah, but, but I for think, the most part it's yeah. It's it's someone that wants to enhance their practice. What about you and well, your I courses? Well I, I think it, it it is some of both the reason I was kind of asking about this is there's a I, another sort of perceptual shift that, that I really have seen from the time, like when I was first in practice, you know, I got out of massage school in the late eighties. And at that time there was kind of an assumption that every, everybody who was really serious about what they're doing went to take continuing education courses because that's where you specialized and that's where you sort of got your advanced training. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a sort of an assumption that everybody would do that. And it really does not seem to be that way anymore. It seems to be a lot more driven by, um, meeting requirements for a larger percentage of the the crew, and then there is a lot of other people who are in it because they really do want to learn. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know that, that happens for us in our online program because uh, you know uh, there's you know there's just a lot of really really crappy online education in our profession right now. So people think that it's um, easy and really simple to do online courses, and some people will sign up for our online courses and they'll get in there's like. Yeah, hell, I'm not doing this <laughs> because it's a lot of work. So it sort of self-weeds those people out. Um, and then the people who stay and stick with it, they put, I'm telling you, they put forth some awesome, awesome work. Uh, some of these people are really just, you can tell they're they're into it and they're getting a lot out of it. And I just, I, I've found them to be the some of the very best students I've ever worked with. And it's just, it's really impressive the effort and what they come in and get out of it. Definitely. You know, I find online courses more challenging. It always surprises me that people prefer, I mean, everybody learns differently. And for me, I always found an in-class, in-person course much easier to digest. Uh, I only took, I think, two online courses when I was in university. And I just found them so tedious to have to sit at the screen and I don't know. I preferred actually just going into a lecture hall and listening and going to the labs and doing my work. I, the online courses were really not easier, in my opinion. I think they're actually more challenging yeah. sometimes because you have to be dedicated. And you have to have the commitment and sit down and do the work. And I don't know, maybe my mind wandered a little too much. <laughs> well, I think you're, yeah, and you're really getting into a lot of the crux of what makes a good online course, because this is, you know, one of the things that I tell people all the time when they, you know, we get into conversations about building online courses, I'll tell them it is really easy to build an online course. And it's really hard to build a good online course. Mm -hmm. And that's often the difference in uh, that it's technology has made it really easy to throw some videos and some PDFs up on a website and tell people to go read it and watch the videos and answer a multiple choice uh, question test. And that's pretty easy, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's really good education. And good instructional design in an online course is, is pretty hard to build. Um, and that's why I think you don't see it so much. But, you know, we're interactive people and we like to interact with other individuals. And that's where the classroom excels so much is that that interactivity with your peers and the getting, you know, getting together. And, and massage therapists work in kind of lonely environments, you know, in your treatment room by yourself all day. So yep. there's a lot of that sort of peer connection and networking process that happens in a classroom that's that's desirable for a lot of people. Definitely. Uh, you had said that in, I think you said the late 80s, early 90s, I don't remember what what time period you said, but um, that you felt that people were coming out of school and those who wanted to excel in their profession were taking continuing education and you feel that's not the case anymore. What has changed since then? 
the internet. I blame the internet. Everybody thinks they can just watch everything on YouTube and they're an expert. Yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot of that. It's just a whole lot of uh, the the idea that things should be free, things mm-hmm. should be easy, and I, you know I shouldn't have to work very hard to meet these re- these stupid requirements sort of thing. And there's a just like I'll, all I want to do is just do my practice and you know leave me alone sort of thing. Um, there's not um, in a lot of instances a really good understanding of our deficiencies. You know, it's that whole idea of that we got a whole bunch of people out there working who don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they think they're a whole lot more of an expert than they really are. And that's that's a potential problem. You sound just like Mark, only you said it much more eloquently, but you sound just like Mark. That's something yeah. that comes out of his mouth all the time is there's a lot of people who maybe don't realize that there's a whole lot of things that they don't know. Yeah, there's that... Uh, Oh, what was it? That sort of um, sort of uh, graded scale between the the uh, the person who knows nothing, which is the uh, unconscious incompetence, and then that moves into the conscious incompetence, where you know that you don't know things, and mm-hmm. then eventually goes into the what is it? The the conscious competence, where or the unconscious competence, where you don't have to think about it anymore. You just do things. You don't know why. You just know because you've done it so long. And you've done. You've gotten to that level of expertise. And mm. there's a there's a pretty significant scale moving through that trajectory that um, a lot of people kind of don't recognize where they are on that scale. I think. Uh... And one of the earlier episodes I had said through hosting this podcast, I actually have learned how many things I don't know. And it's inspired me to even take more courses. I mean, I think I slowed down on continuing education because we're teaching so many courses, but I've started, you know, taking courses myself, doing stuff online because I'm recognizing that there's actually a lot that I still need to learn. Yeah. And you guys have had, you know, a wide diversity of of guests on on the program talking about a lot of different perspectives of things. And and it's been good because, you know, some of them are like, you know, I I can tell there's instances where they're like, you're sort of like some of these are are coming up against your own models and perspectives. Like, oh, that's interesting. I don't know if I like really go there, but yeah, sort of go with that. And those are good things for us. I think they're always the good things to, to challenge our thinking and make us really look at things through through different perspectives sometimes. Definitely. Why don't we talk about your podcast, Whitney? What's Has this been something that's been brewing for a long time? Um, have you and Mark talked about this before? I, I don't know. I, no, we didn't talk about no? podcasts. Yeah, I don't think... I don't think Mark and I talked about it at all. Yeah. So uh, it is something that has been brewing for a while for at least maybe two, three months or something like that. Um, I have a good friend and colleague, Till Luca, who's a myofascial uh, practitioner, been um, at the Rolf Institute and is trained in structural integration. He and I both go back. He goes back a little bit farther than I do, probably to the mid to early 80s, I think, when he first got into this um, over in Esalen Institute in California and then eventually at the Rolf Institute in Boulder. And uh, Till and I have been colleagues for years and, and, you know, talking about different things. And we were having a couple of phone conversations and just getting into the weeds because we're both really super geeky about some of this kind of stuff. And I was just sitting around thinking like, man, we should be, we should be talking about this stuff with lots of other people because there's some really interesting things that we're getting into that I think would be good to share with other people. So I, I had been sort of touring around with the idea of getting into a podcast because I've been, you know, listening to lots of different ones and I learned so much from them from different topic areas and things like that. And so I, I contacted him and said, Hey, are, were you interested in doing this? And he said, yeah, I think that'd be great. So we've been uh, working on uh, ideas and information gathering and putting together what we're going to do. And then, uh, you know, recording a bunch of uh, episodes and we're actually launching and going live. Um, I don't know when this episode will air, but this is the what is it today? Seventeenth of, of December, and we're going to go go live tomorrow. So it's going to be up uh, up um, and active tomorrow as of tomorrow. And it's called the Thinking Practitioner. So the Thinking we're going to focus a lot on that. clinical reasoning and all that kind of stuff, and and those kinds of things that we've been talking about here. Oh, that's going to be really cool. So it'll be very very educational. I think a lot of therapists will definitely want to tune into that. Uh, someone described our podcast as edutainment, mm-hmm. which I really liked because, uh-huh. you know, yeah. we, we are definitely a combination of both. So by the sounds of it, yours will be a little bit more educational, um, maybe not yeah. as as um, ridiculous as ours can get. Um, but give but me yeah, an idea. I listened to one of those other earlier episodes, Amanda, you were talking about the uh, the professional level in the air quotes, you know, so we'll try I'll probably <laughs> be doing something like that, somewhat more <laughs> professional kinds of things on certain fronts. <laughs> yes, professional. I'm doing I'm doing the air quotes right now. <laughs> you know what though? It's I I 
I appreciate the the educational aspect of the podcast, but I like that we've we've got some of the entertainment stuff in it because sometimes, especially teaching continuing education, things can get a little bit stuffy and sometimes we just need to lighten up and be a little bit more real. Yeah, absolutely true. And it's one of the things that really drew me to your podcast is that I, I think you're giving people a really realistic view of what goes on in the trenches on a day-to-day basis and, and, and that unfiltered picture of what life is really like as a massage therapist. I mean, your podcast would be something really good for people to listen to before they get in this field mm-hmm. and kind of know what they're sort of up against because it does it does that so well. It really does give people the the inside view into what life is like on a day-to-day basis for a massage therapist. Well, thank you. I appreciate that feedback. And, you know, we've had a lot of students reach out to us and say that, you know, like, thanks for giving me an idea of what this is going to be like. Because, yeah, in school, you're just so focused on getting through the next oral practical exam, getting through your exams, writing your licensing exams. You're not thinking about life afterwards as much. So I think the podcast has yeah. been, I think, educational for students based on the feedback we've been getting. Yeah, It would be interesting. I don't know what's going to happen with this stuff down the road, but I would like to see maybe somewhere down the road, some of these kinds of things becoming maybe pieces of curriculum in schools that, you know, people would just like, you know, in the olden days in school, we used to sit down and watch a film strip in the classroom. You know, maybe we're listening to podcasts in the classroom and discussing things on certain episodes, you know, so that's, that's something that would be interesting to see if that ever develops. Interesting. Give me an idea of, you said you guys have already been collecting content and recording some bits. Yeah. So like, what can we expect out of the first episode? Yeah. Yeah. So the first, um, the first, ep- we recorded one episode and it turned out to be really long. Um, and so we broke it into two episodes it was basically Till and I talking about our backgrounds and you know what shaped our thinking, you know, a lot about his background in the Rolf Institute and his uh, work in that field of structural integration. And I was talking about a lot of my work in um, the orthopedic realm where I had been working with this. I was working with an orthopedic clinic that was affiliated with Emory University Medical School in Atlanta. And I just was very, very lucky that I lived right down the street from this medical school and the medical library because back in those days, this was the late 80s and early 90s, you know, there was no internet. And so if you wanted journal articles, for example, you had to go to the library to get mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. And so I was spending a lot of my spare time in the medical library, just digging into stuff and learning all kinds of things. So we were talking a lot about our backgrounds and what shaped our perspectives and things. And then the, the uh, third episode, we broke that into two episodes because it got kind of long. And then the third one, we're going to launch it with three episodes. The next one was on sacroiliac joint disorders we got a couple episodes coming up on big challenges facing the profession. Another one, we're talking about uh, electronic health records uh, with uh, Diana Thompson. And uh, we just got through doing one on uh, tendon disorders, one on scoliosis. So we're going to deal with some condition-oriented things, some mm-hmm. big-picture things that are challenges for the profession. And, uh, and we'll dig into some of the really controversial hot topics like fascia and pain science and all that kind of stuff and, you know, get ready for the tomatoes to get thrown at us. From <laughs> kind of kind of so, so we're, you know, we're going to try to tackle it all uh, right and be on. a little bit irreverent in the process. So. Somebody used that word to describe us um, in an article recently. And for some reason, my initial reaction was to be offended. Why? And then I, I stepped back for a uh-huh. second. And I said, why am I being triggered by this? We are like, I don't, I don't know why I'm upset by this, but. I don't know. I think I spent the first half of my career as a massage therapist having a persona and I dropped it halfway through because you don't need it. It's bullshit. It's not going to get you what you want in your life, in your career. But I had this persona of air quotes professional. And uh, so when I saw somebody write that about us and not even in a negative way, she was saying it very positively. I was like, oh, oh, wait, Uh she's right. Yeah. Where was well, it's that? A, you know, again, it's about keeping it. It's about keeping it real. You know, it's about keeping it real. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I figured out where it's from. It was that article, uh, the top, however many podcasts for female entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah that's that's pretty funny. We made that list. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. I mean, I'm so excited to hear your episodes because. Um, I like a lot of people, you know, I would love to take so many courses. To be honest with you, I would take courses all the time if I had the time and I had the money and I could, you know, I could just take courses every weekend. But unfortunately, that's not reality. So this will be a really good way for people to pick your brain a little bit and, you know, get some insight and maybe enhance their practice a little bit. And hopefully they will sign up for some of your online courses as well, because I think there's definitely 
not I think, there is still value in taking courses. You can't learn everything from a podcast or a YouTube clip. You've got to actually put in the work and take some continuing education if you want to specialize and enhance your practice. The end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's really true. And, and again, you know, we're we're hoping just to enhance some conversations and hopefully get some ideas from people about things they want to hear about or things that they're grappling with or challenges that they notice in their profession. You know how how these things need to be addressed. And the other thing, Till and I both are are kind of research junkies, so we're going to try to to bring in you know some current concepts from research papers that we see about it and challenge some of those things too, because there's some other there's a lot of stuff out there that's published in some of the research literature that's not so accurate. And we need to, you know, develop those critical thinking skills to be able to read some of those things and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, this doesn't really say what you're thinking it's saying. Oh, I can't wait for that. Uh, That's something that we're huge geeks over here. And that's something that Mark and I do, you know, in our spare time, because we don't work enough. Uh, We will discuss research articles and because we see in some of the pa- the Facebook groups the way that people interpret some of the research, and I think a lot of times therapists are missing the point of the article or don't really understand how to interpret it. So yeah, him and I will sit and pick apart research articles and talk about all of the mistakes people are making. So it, this will be interesting yeah. to listen to mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, I'm curious to hear your opinion too. That one of the you know things that I have always seen to be an issue here is that on on that front, for example, is that because massage therapy really, at least in, in North America in the last 40, 50 years, grew more out of this sort of lineage um, teaching model of, you know, I it started as this sort of, you know, I learned from so-and-so and so-and-so learned from that person. And there was this kind of lineage education model. It's, it's I think in Canada, we've seen it more move into a traditional academic environment, into some of the, you know, colleges and universities. We're not quite there as much here in the States, but because we don't have that kind of strong academic background, I think a lot of the practitioners who come into our field don't have that kind of critical analysis of academic literature in their background. So oftentimes you see these things in Facebook discussions just rapidly devolving into these personal attacks and people not recognizing you can, you know, have a serious disagreement with somebody's perspective and that's not a personal attack of that individual, but we haven't learned how to, debate academically very well yet. I mean, do you all feel that to be true too in in where you are? 100%. I don't think we're there at all. I agree with you that Canadian education might be a little bit ahead of, based on what I've, I've heard from the therapists in the States, we might be a little bit ahead. However, I don't think massage therapy is considered um, academic at all here. It's not a university degree. It's not at the same level as physiotherapists or chiropractors. You know, they have to have their undergraduate degree first and it's a postgrad, whereas massage therapy isn't. So I don't think there is the understanding of... Um, really breaking down research and understanding how to interpret it at all. Yeah. So that's a big challenge for us. I think a big, a big challenge is, is uh, how to develop that, uh, that kind of academic skill and, and critical, critical thinking processes. But you know, the, the I was talking to Till and I were talking about this yesterday. Um, there is, it is a double, you know, social media, for example, is a double-edged sword because while it also has, you know, it does have that aspect of it where people devolve into these, you know, personal attacks and vitriolic, you know, discussions. You guys were had that guy on there not too long ago that had, had you know, just had gotten raked over the coals about, um, mm-hmm. what was it about? It was a, about his uh, personal exercise. training um, and or personal exercise. Training thing, yeah, exercise. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, those kind of things certainly do happen. But the other flip side of that is it's been hugely beneficial for us being able to carry on almost real-time conversations with people on the other side of the world that we mm-hmm. never would have met um, and have, you know, good uh, discourse and like, hey, post this, look at this study here, look at this piece of content here and things that we would never have, have had access to prior. So, uh, and for me, that's especially important because I live in a very rural area um, that's far away from other um, people that I get to interact with very much. So social media is a big part of the community that I you know, have on a daily basis to interact with. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of positives to it. I think a huge problem with social media is somebody sees an article, they don't really check the source, and then they're reposting it and reposting it. And then suddenly everybody's talking about this article that may be one isolated study that has no validity or reliability to it whatsoever. And we're all taking this seriously. So that's probably the biggest problem with it. But at least it's fostering 
during some discussion. And I mean, the personal attacks we could do without because it, like you said, we we can debate without attacking somebody else. And, um, you know, you brought up Rui with the, the exercise <laughs> post. His original post, there was nothing wrong with it. It was absolutely correct yeah. that a lot of what massage therapists are doing might possibly be out of their scope. But people were taking it personally, like, well, what do you mean? I'm educated. I can, I can prescribe exercise or that, you know, there were some people who were responding to him who have other education behind them, you know, maybe they've done kinesiology in university, or maybe they've taken other certifications. He wasn't talking to them. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was, it was turning into this argument where his initial intent was to say, if you think that your clients need more movement-based work, and maybe refer to a movement specialist because massage isn't that. Yeah, and that's that's part of us not uh, being um, professionally developed enough. I think as a field, uh, we just haven't really gotten to that level of professional maturity yet to understand where we fit and where our perspectives are. We want so badly to be given respect and uh, attention by other health professionals for who we are, but we also don't, uh, as a field, have a really good understanding of, of where we fit in that in that realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and understanding so. the research is going to be a big part of it because I feel like we're very divided now with, you know, the people who call themselves evidence-based and then the, you know, as we've called on the podcast before, the woo-woo practitioners. And, you know, then there's me right. where I fall somewhere right in the middle. And it's, yeah. you know, being able to understand the research, what it's saying, how it can be applied and how we can still be massage therapists in the traditional sense. There's so many massage therapists who don't even want to practice massage anymore because they feel like everything we were taught in school was a lie based on current research. But I think, again, it's misinterpretation of the current research. Yeah. And I think the, the, the very important takeaway for a lot of these practitioners is to recognize that um, a lot of what you do probably won't change that much based on these kinds of things. But what we're really looking at is the shifting narrative about why we do what we do exactly. and what it is actually accomplishing. And there's there's an importance in having a more accurate narrative about what we're doing, but it certainly doesn't mean that a lot of the methodologies that you've been using for years that get good results with your clients, you, you don't have to abandon doing that because they work. They're Absolutely. getting good results. And so keep keep doing what you're doing, you know. Um, I was having a discussion. This is a um, couple about two years ago, maybe it's by now. It's uh, down at the San Diego Pain Summit um, with a biomedical researcher that was there, and we were talking about the whole biopsychosocial, you know, pain management process in the clinical environment. And he said, you know, out of all these people that are here representing all these different professions, this guy was saying, now he said, now honestly, I'm not a clinician, so I don't have that perspective. But just looking at it from the biomedical research perspective. I think massage therapy is probably one of the most powerful biopsychosocial interventions for pain management that's out there. And I, I agree, a hundred percent. I agree. Yeah, we I are probably really one of the only um, only complementary healthcare services that actually sort of addresses all of these things. You know, when you're going for a chiropractic treatment, not that it's not effective, I feel, you know, the chiropractors are, they're in, they're out, they're, you know, so focused on um, subluxations and that's it, they're gone. And then, I mean, I'm generalizing, not all chiropractors treat that way. Nobody send me hate mail. And then, you know, there's a lot of physios who use a lot of modalities, but, you know, we're really, really hands-on and I think we are really much more in tuned with the the P's and the S's than, you know, than some of the other healthcare providers. So I agree with that for sure. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that we're spending a large amount of time with people Mm -hmm. in a very, very close, intimate sort of environment really engages a huge amount of power in that therapeutic encounter. Mm -hmm. And my, um, I don't, don't think I mentioned this earlier on, you know, my background was actually in psychology before I got into massage therapy. I was in graduate school studying counseling psychology and we would look at this kind of stuff in, in psychology in the, in the counseling process and recognize that the techniques or methods that you would use in the counseling process were nowhere near as important as the client-therapist relationship. Mm-hmm. That's what really made the big difference. And I think that translates a lot over into what we're doing um, with our encounters in massage therapy. Yeah. Not that it's not important what those techniques and methods are that we're using, but um, that the power of that interaction is huge, really yeah. huge. Yeah, of course. I mean, and of course, the techniques are important. And of course, you have to have that technical knowledge and skill. But um, 
I, did you listen to the episode with Brian Fulton about the placebo effect? Um, I don't think I listened to that one yet. Okay, well... Is that recent? Uh, that was pretty old. I can't remember the date on that. I'll get back to you. But we d- we discussed this a lot. And I, I think I had mentioned on that episode where sometimes, you know, you have a client who's, you know, they're experiencing pain in the way they're experiencing pain for whatever reason. You know, we know there's all these factors that are contributing to their pain. And sometimes all it takes is me, the therapist, you know, after a few sessions saying, well, this feels a lot better and this moving is moving a lot better. And just me saying that, then they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. This feels a lot better. Yeah, this is moving a lot better. And suddenly their pain experience has decreased and it's nothing more yes, than yeah. they've they've trusted me they they believe in what i'm doing and they believe in what i'm saying and that small little you know bit of feedback that i give them makes them feel that much better yeah absolutely and that is highly powerful you know mm-hmm. and just the you know the the basic neurology of of us touching somebody with soothing gentle touch goes back to uh, things that are integrated from the time of infancy of, you know, the soothing touch from a parent that gets encoded into the brain is this is good stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, and that has incredible uh, potential healing uh, powers, I think, in in terms of what we're doing. So those are the kind of things that I try to uh, go back to remind myself, you know, when it's like, you get so ground down into the minutia of the difficulty of, of some of the big projects and things that just feel so overwhelming sometimes. You're like trying to change the face of massage education and, and you know, things that feel like it's pulling a freight train up a hill some days. And like, But then you go back to those things and remember, this is why you do what you do. This is why you're still doing it uh, mm. after all this time. Do you love being a massage therapist? I really do. You know, I... I didn't intend to get into this profession. It was kind of accidental because I was in uh, graduate school and in, in studying psychology and just thought I was going to go to massage so I could find a quick and easy way to kind of make money on my own schedule. But um, I got absolutely hooked, and I think it's an uh, absolutely fascinating journey that it's taken me on. So uh, I am still 30 years into it, you know, very highly passionate about what it is, what it does, and what it can do for people because I've seen it. I've seen it make some just absolutely remarkable changes in people's lives. And that's powerful. That's really, really powerful stuff. Are you still practicing in any I'm not capacity? doing clinical work any longer. Yeah, I've been, I still I like to keep, keep my skills up. So I do some things every once in a while. I don't have a formal clinical practice anymore because a couple of years, well, a few years back now, I had to kind of make a decision I was, because I was spreading myself too thin. I just like my clients were getting upset because I was traveling on the road a lot and I was not available and, um, I was, you know, doing a lot of this education stuff and I sort of had to sit down and say, like, what is my real absolute passion right now and where am I most committed and where do I think I can make the best contribution? And for me, I really felt like, you know, my heart and soul is really in education and research and I really feel like I can affect more people if I can do some really good things to move ourselves forward as a profession through education than I can individually in the clinic. So, I'm going to keep all of that, you know, the work and experiences really valuable fodder and not lose my skills and keep doing some stuff every once in a while. But I am going to commit myself fully to, to being an, an educator primarily. All right. I love how you're extending that into the podcast. Are you are you comfortable in front of a mic? Very. Yeah. Uh, and that's just from, I think, you know, from teaching for years and uh, just sitting down and, and doing stuff. And, and Mark, you and I talked about this a little bit. You know, I was a musician years ago, so I got comfortable of being on stage you from the time Shit. I was in high school, you know. So um, we, uh, you know, that, that whole thing is translated really well. And so I, I feel very comfortable in front, of, in front of the mic and doing that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, as long as I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> if I get into the weeds and I don't know what I'm talking about, like, uh, yeah, and, you know, I think all of us feel a little bit ill at ease. I wish I could pinpoint the the moment when I became comfortable. When I first started teaching, I was the person that would stand up in front of a classroom of students. And if I was holding a piece of paper, the paper would be shaking. I was so uh-huh. terribly yeah. nervous. And the funny thing is, if you were to meet Mark and I in person, um, Mark's very quiet. In social settings, he doesn't speak. But the minute you put him up on a stage or in front of a classroom, boom, he's on and he's doing great. Me in a social setting, I will talk to everyone. I can be life of the party, put me up in front of a room full of people to speak and I freeze. (laughs) But there is a moment because I had no choice. You know, this is what we've decided we're going to do with our career and we're teaching and we're podcasting. And there must have been a moment where I just said, fuck it, I'm just going to chill out and do this. And now it just seems like second nature. I'm not so terrified anymore. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it fascinating how you develop those kind of skills and, 
and abilities. And, you know, I think I, when I was talking to you about when I first started teaching massage and I was really young and still looked very young, I was in my mid to late twenties and looked really, really young. And so we were having, you know, I was teaching a lot of people who were second career professionals who were, you know, significantly older and more experienced than me when I was in the classroom. And I, you know, and I'm kind of a small guy. I'm not a, a large sort of demanding presence in the classroom. And I thought the only way that I'm going to ever get respect from these people is if I really, really, really know my stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that became my mission was to be just so far and above preparation of knowing things that that's the only way that I could really gain respect from from people. So you find your own niche, I think, of, of what, what really comes across, you know, how you how you convey those kinds of things. Yeah, I agree. Is there anything else you want to talk to Whitney about? There's so many things I feel like we could get from him. We could talk all day. <laughs> I want to know about his music a little bit. I'm not going to lie. All right, let's talk about music. Yeah. So like about my background, did you say? Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up being sort of obsessed with the idea of being a musician ever since I was like um, eight or nine years old and was a saxophone player and uh, played saxophone in high school. And we are had a really interesting high school band experience because our band director was an outstanding band director. This was in the 70s. And when uh, sort of the, there was a little bit of a resurgence of big band mm-hmm. stuff, uh, you know, some of the, uh, Maynard Ferguson, who was a Canadian um, big band leader uh, back in that time, was a really influential for a lot of high school uh, stage bands. And so, I was a young kid playing tenor saxophone. Everybody, you know, made the jokes about, "Hey, that saxophone is bigger than you are." Just, you know, <laughs> this crawly little kid, um, and got real serious about it. Uh, went to music school after I got out of high school, and ended up at um, Berkeley College of Music up in Boston, um, studying music. And uh, it became very apparent to me. You know, I pl- spent a year playing in a rock band in, in town and just trying to, you know, see if I could make it. And then ended up going back to school in Berkeley at uh, Berkeley in Boston. And I think that was, that was like 1983 ish, something like that. Mm-hmm. And for me, uh, that was a really wake up, a good wake up call because I saw there were so many absolutely phenomenal musicians out there starving who just couldn't make it. And yeah. I wasn't that good. And I knew I was not going to be able to compete on that level with people and really be able to make a decent living at it. And so I kind of at that point began saying, look, you know, this has been a it's been a great run. It's been a lot of fun. I've had a blast doing this and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I'd go back and do it exactly the same again. But I don't think this is a career for mm-hmm. me. I don't think this is a way to make a living. Um, and I don't know how musicians do it now with you know, the fact that, you know, royalties are gone from selling albums and, you know, the the music streaming services and all that kind of stuff made it so hard to make a living. I don't know how they do it anymore. Um, Yeah, that's impossible. You you still play, don't you? I haven't picked up. I mean, I'll play every once in a while, but I haven't played seriously in some years now. It's been a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, the guys I played with, we got together when last year and did a couple shows, but you know, I do it yeah. as a hobby, you know. Yeah. Do you still play, Whitney? Well, I kind Whitney? of toy with the idea that someday I'll, I'll do some more of it. I have, you know, a couple of my dad's instruments because my dad is a guitar maker. So oh, wow. um, I wanted to keep some of his instruments just because they're phenomenal pieces of, of artistry. And mm-hmm. so someday maybe I'll pick it up again and, and learn something new. But I think my saxophone days are, are over because you pick it up and, you know, you can't play like you used to. And yeah. It's, like, yeah, it's not so yeah, so. yeah I'm, I totally agree with you. I, I think we were just talking about this on one of our previous episodes, the stage band I used to play in in high school, because I played trumpet for like 10 years. And I'm like, I, if I picked up a trumpet right now, I don't even think I'd know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Something about massage therapists and musicians, like you're probably, I don't know, the 78th therapist <laughs> we've talked to who was also a musician. There's just, I don't know, yeah. I guess massage therapists are creative. Somebody said that on one of the recent episodes uh, might have been me that was you i All think right. that's true i think there's a yeah a, an aspect of that whole creative element that that really gets kind of comes out and expresses itself in, in different ways mm-hmm. so yeah i, I think it's, it's certainly a likely thing so and who doesn't love music music is therapeutic it all goes together yeah, yeah. Right on. And, and i think too that you know like i was studying jazz improvisation a lot especially at, at berkeley there's a lot of stuff in that whole process of the idea and the concepts behind improvisation, when you look at the whole neuroscience behind that, that to me 
was planting some really good seeds for helping me learn a lot of new and innovative things and, you know, like software applications or, you know, how to tie these two things together and coming up with new and different ideas. And I think a lot of those synapses and sort of brain pathways were probably initiated by the the neural processes of learning music and, uh, you know, especially uncharted, unplayed music in, in, in improvisation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think I heard something about music and like young children learning music um, is somehow correlated with their academic success. success. So yeah, we know, we know that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Coordinated with their academics. I don't know if that uh, impacts IQ, which is supposedly some kind of set knowledge capability, but yeah, but definitely with academics and music, it goes together. Yeah. Well, this has been really fun and I'm really excited to hear your first episode. So I will be tuning in. Yeah. So why don't you uh, tell us where we can find your podcast? Yes. So the podcast can be found at the thinking practitioner.com and it will also be um, uh, indexed in Apple podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher and all those other places where people listen to their podcasts. So hopefully you can pick us up on one of those locations or uh, cruise over to the website and listen to it uh, there as well. Again, that's thethinkingpractitioner.com. Right on. Thank you so much, Whitney. This has been really awesome. And thanks again for reaching out to us and letting us know that you've been listening to our podcast. Honestly, I... I was blown away that somebody like you actually was finding value in what we do. So thank you so much. Well, you guys are doing a wonderful job and I encourage you, you know, keep it going because uh, you're influencing lots of other people out there. And, and uh, I think you're doing a, a great service to our profession to keep the uh, discussions out there. So uh, I'll keep listening and, and look forward to hearing some, some new and interesting stuff that you got coming down the pike as well. Cool. Well, thanks for uh, spending some time with us today. It's been awesome. You guys have been listening to two massage therapists in a microphone. Peace.